Today for our congregational prayer, we are praying for attendance. And those of you who are physically able, I invite you to kneel as we pray. Father in heaven, we pray that during this worship experience, we will touch you and you will touch us. We are praying, Heavenly Father, that our lives will be dramatically and powerfully affected by your presence here today. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that that would be the experience of all who attend here. And thus, we are praying that more will come and that they will see and experience you, and that their lives would be changed as a result of it. Lord, we pray that people we love and care for that no longer attend church, we pray they will come back, and that when they come back, they will find you, and they will find meaning, and they will find purpose in life because of you. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that each one of us will have a heart to receive and accept and care for those you bring. And we thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing our series regarding Moses. Today's sermon is called Moses, the Undertaker. Let's go to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. It's the second book in the Bible. If you have a Bible with you, if you don't have a Bible, you can follow the verses on the screen. Exodus 2, and we'll start with verse 11. Last week, we told the story about Moses being a baby. And uh, Moses has been adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. And that's where the story picks up here. <clears throat> Chapter 2, verse 11. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that way, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, Why are you striking your companion? Then he said, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well." Now go to the New Testament. If you find Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the next book is the book of Acts. Go to Acts chapter 7. We're going to read the account given there by Stephen. Stephen is the very first Christian martyr. He is on trial for following Jesus Christ. He is being tried by the Sanhedrin Council, which is a part of the Jewish system of courts. And he is rehearsing the history of the children of Israel. And so he comes to the part of Moses, and this is what he says. Acts 7, verse 21. <clears throat> but when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. 
And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. But when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. But they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then, at this saying, Moses fled and became a sojourner in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. One more account is given in Hebrews chapter 11. Go to the right, or if you want to start in the back of your Bible, come in from the left, because it's towards the end. Hebrews 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible." So that's what the Bible says about this story regarding Moses. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian living during the days when the, the city of Jerusalem was ransacked and the temple was destroyed around A.D. 70, he was a prolific writer and we have his writings to this day. And so he helps give insight into the minds of the Hebrew people. The story of Moses takes place 1,450 years before Jesus. But in the days of Jesus, this is what Josephus said regarding Moses. He wrote that according to Jewish tradition, the then ruling Pharaoh had no son, and Moses was selected to be the heir. Moses was the heir apparent. Moses was going to become the next Pharaoh. Yet Moses decided not to do that. He walked away from all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He walked away from his mighty words and his mighty deeds. And in his heart decided to visit his brethren. He decided to associate with them, the children of Israel. And when he was out there in this decision process, he defended and avenged an oppressed Israelite. He supposed his brethren would understand that he was the one to deliver them. They did not, and he was not either at this time being used by God to deliver them. He chose to be with the people of God rather than to enjoy the temporary pleasures of sin. He decided there were great riches in serving God rather than having the treasures in Egypt. So the Bible says he forsook Egypt. Yet Moses was not walking with God at this time. He had good intentions, but he was not walking with God. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 2. 
Exodus chapter 2, and we begin with verse 11. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown. How old was he? Forty. That he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. Not an unusual sight. The Egyptians were hard taskmasters to the Hebrews. And Moses saw this, but it bothered him. So he looked this way and that way, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Note this, the Bible very clearly says he looked this way and that way, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. What are the implications of that? If he had seen somebody, what would he have done? He wouldn't have murdered him. We don't know what he would have done. Now, the sermon is called Moses the Undertaker, and I'm going to give Pastor Brad credit for that sermon. It's the last time I'm giving him credit for helping me to be creative. I said, help me, Brad. Moses the mortician isn't working, which was a step up from Moses the murderer. So Brad came up with undertaker, and immediately it clicked with me because the word undertaker has two meanings. One, a person whose business is to prepare the dead for burial and to arrange and manage funerals. Well, he did that. And then two, a person who enters upon, sets about, takes into hand, attempts to do a task. He did that. He sought to do what God can only do and ultimately ended up murdering somebody. But here's the question. Why does he kill the Egyptians or the Egyptian? Why didn't he order him to stop beating the Israelite? Hey, man, that's enough. Don't kill the king's property. Why didn't he just put a halt to it that way? It says he looked this way, he looked that way. That means that this murder was thought about. It was processed in his mind, and he decided here is an opportunity to do this because no one is looking. It may have been an act of passion, but it was done purposely. He knew what he was doing. Why does he kill the Egyptian? The New Testament says he avenged the one suffering wrong. He essentially is acting in what he considers a just manner. He has judged the Egyptian wrong, he has pronounced sentence upon the Egyptian, and he has carried out the punishment. In essence, he is the judge, the jury, and the executioner. But why does he kill the Egyptian? I'm going to ask you another question. The answer to why did Moses kill the Egyptian and the answer to this question are the same. And this is where it comes to our home. Why would someone who is married tell their spouse they love them and later in the day judge them, pronounce sentence, and then seek to punish them? Why? Why does he kill the Egyptian? Why do married people treat each other the way they do? The answer is the same for both questions. Neither Moses nor the married person is walking in the Spirit of God. 
Both may know and care about God. Both may have decided to cast their lot in with God. Both may be seeking the riches of heaven over the riches of earth. But both have become undertakers in a very negative way. Neither of them understand the application of the crucifixion into their practical lives. The crucifixion is the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at that today and see how that opens up for us in understanding of how we can walk with God and not be like Moses or a spouse that needs to repent. Let's go to Galatians chapter 2. You will find that in the New Testament. If you're there, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, then you come to Galatians. Galatians 5, verse 24. I'm sorry, Galatians 2, verse 20. It was going so fast through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I couldn't stop in chapter 2. All right, chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ... It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now note this, Paul, who writes this, says, I have been crucified with Christ. He's going to mention crucifixion again. Go to now to chapter 5, verse 24. He says, and those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, two references to crucifixion, but two entirely different experiences. In the first verse, I have been crucified with Christ is describing a passive experience. That is, it happened to us when we accepted Christ as our Savior. In verse 24 here, it says, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh is talking about an active experience. The first speaks of our freedom from the condemnation of the law by sharing in Christ's crucifixion. The second refers to the freedom we have from the power of the flesh by ensuring its crucifixion. Well, we'll understand this better when we look at it in its context. So you see, the first reference is us involved in Jesus' crucifixion. The second reference is us crucifying the flesh. And we'll see what the flesh is and all that in just a moment. So let's get a running start. Let's get some background. Let's go to Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16. I say then... Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Well, let's, let's look at those terms. Walking in the Spirit is walking with God. If an individual is walking with God, they will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, the flesh here is set up in opposition to the Spirit. This is a war. This war happens in the heart of every believer. Before I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior, I function in the flesh. Another way to put it is the sinful nature. We are born with a sinful nature. 
That sinful nature is what makes us sinners. That sinful nature is what produces sin within us. That sinful nature is selfish, rebellious, does not want to come under the control of anyone and especially of God. The sinful nature is our problem. Prior to becoming a Christian, the sinful nature rules in my life. I have control over it to some level because I don't want to go to prison or I don't want to have to pay a fine, so I can temper it. But overall, all my acts at the core are selfish and for me. When Christ comes into my heart, there is a new experience that takes place. For the first time, I begin to love God more than I love me. And I transfer from everything being about me to now God is important and what God thinks. Now, it would be wonderful, I mean wonderful, if when I accepted Christ as my Savior, the battle with the sinful flesh was over. It would be wonderful, but it's not that way. That sinful flesh will live with us from now until Jesus comes, and when he comes, he will say, that this corruptible shall put on incorruption, and that's when the sinful nature dies. And folks, when we go to heaven, there's not going to be any more wrestling inside, and that will be glory to me. How about you? That's going to be wonderful. No more struggle, but between now and then, there is a struggle, and Paul is talking about it here. And he's talking about the sinful nature by calling it the flesh. Verse 17, For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. That's the struggle. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. You're not condemned. So walking in the spirit is the key. Moses was not walking in the Spirit when he choked that man to death. That spouse that ripped the head off of their mate was not walking in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit is the key to victory, so we will spend several sermons talking about it. Walking in the Spirit. Notice what Paul says walking in the sinful nature is like. Verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, licentiousness. So all manner of sexual immorality. Then idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath. How many of you have never had an outburst of wrath? Let me see your hand. As I'm going to say, lying is in here somewhere. <laughs> outbursts of wrath. Not being in the spirit, but walking in the flesh. Selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelry, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do you understand how serious this is? The Bible says those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
Wow, that gets my attention. How about you? Because you might not have committed all the sins listed here, but I guarantee you, in your sinful nature, you have the capacity to do so. And if you're not walking with God and given opportunity, you would do so. So what's the solution? Watch this. Verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit, this is the fruit of God's Holy Spirit being in our lives, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. There's no condemnation. Now, what is that telling us? That is telling us that if we're walking with God, these things will be in our life. Now, I want to ask you a question. How many of you have prayed to be more loving? How many of you have ever prayed to be more loving? How many of you right now are praying to be more patient? More kind. Goodness. We have prayed for all these things. And I want you to know that I believe it's the wrong prayer. Because I can pray all day long to be more loving. I can pray all day long to be more kind. I can pray all day long to be more faithful. But if I am not walking in the Spirit, nothing comes of it. What I need to pray is, God, by Your grace, fill me with Your Holy Spirit and help me to walk in Your Spirit. When I do that, I will love. I will have patience. I will have all these things. That's what happens. That's the difference. And that's the key. And Paul is saying, verse 24, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What does that mean? Martin Luther, some of you are aware of his name, over 500 years ago was a priest in Wittenberg. And there he also taught in the Wittenberg College. And the Roman Catholic Church, of which he was a member and a priest in, was, had begun a pro process of raising money and they called them indulgences, and he, he didn't like what they were doing. And the effect that it was having on this little town of Wittenberg was such that he, he wrote 95 reasons against it and other abuses that the Roman Catholic Church was perpetrating upon its people. And he nailed these 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg in the hope that people would read it. That night... Some folks came and took it down and they copied it and made cop printed it and made copies that went all over Germany. And like a wildfire, what we know today as the great Protestant Reformation was born. So he is highly regarded and highly respected in church history. And many would call him the father of the Reformation. But he writes about this verse and this is what he says. Martin Luther writes that Christ's people nail their flesh to the cross so that although the flesh 
be yet alive, yet can it not perform that which it would do, for as much as it is bound both hand and foot and fast nailed to the cross. Well, what does that mean? Well, if we are going to have victory in our lives, if we are going to be walking with God in our lives, we have choices to make. We are who we choose to be. Now, granted, I didn't choose to be born. That's not that kind of choice. I would have chosen to have more talent. Just this Friday, I was in the office and Rosa was in the work area. And I started singing. And Rosa commented how quiet it's been all week in the office. And I said, uh, I get it. So I quit singing, but next week I'm going to sing louder. I would have chosen more talent. But pretty much in life, our choices is what makes us who we are. And God has given us choices. And in life, we can choose to either be filled with His Spirit or we can choose to walk in the flesh. And Paul says, here's how you do it. You are either crucified with Christ and you live, yet not you, but He lives in you, or you can come here to the later part of the chapter and he says you crucify the flesh. Now when you crucify the flesh, you nail it to the cross yourself. You nail it there and what do you do with it? You leave it there. How did somebody die when they were crucified? They died from lack of attention, from exposure. But here's what we do with our sinful nature. We nurture it, we coddle it, we cuddle it because it's all about us and it's all about our needs, it's all about me. And so we actually keep that thing alive. And here, this powerful picture is that, no, you nail the hand and the other hand and the feet to the cross and you leave that thing there and let it die from want of attention. Now, how long did it take to die when you were crucified? It took hours, sometimes days. That's why people dreaded it. Now, I wish, and I'm sure you do too, I wish we could all say a prayer right now and say, I wish my sinful nature were dead and all I had was the pure thoughts of the Holy Spirit in my heart. Would you go for that if you could? I would too. But it doesn't work that way. It's a lifetime process. And this thing nailed to the wall is going to do everything it can to get off. And you get in an argument with your spouse, it's coming off. It's coming down. And it's going to be judge, jury, and executioner because there's justice involved. My justice and my needs. Now, how does this happen? How can we walk in the Spirit? What is the first simple lesson? It is this. Have you ever noticed how differently you may behave when someone's with you? I was at a gathering not too long ago, and a local judge was there. And I'm sure some of you have visited with him in his courtroom. I know a few, because I've seen you. You may wonder, well, how do I know I'm a chaplain? I just hang out there looking for sermon illustrations. 
So I happen to know this man's political leanings. And I happen to know he's wrong. <laughs> but I also know there might be a day when I stand in his court. So at this gathering, I have choices. Is this a good time to straighten him out? Or would this be just a good time to enjoy his friendship? I chose just to enjoy his friendship. I'll give you another illustration. Four or five ladies gathered together, and they're just raking their husbands over the coals. My husband, yeah, this, this, this. All of a sudden, one of the husbands shows up. Oh, hi, honey. <laughs> Same with the men. Four or five men, just, oh, wise women, ah, hoo, hoo, you know. One of them shows up, oh, huh, you know, everything changes. Now, I want to ask you a very serious question. Where is God right now? Where is God right now? Does he sit on a throne a distance away? Is he sitting next to you in the pew? Is he in your heart? Where is God right now? The Bible teaches us that he inhabits his universe. He doesn't visit this auditorium. He fills it. He's here. Is there any place you can run and not be in the presence of God? There is no place yet we will not sin as long as we are conscious of his presence. So I am never going to tear into my spouse if I'm aware that God is there. It's going to change me. I'm going to make different choices. I'm going to keep myself on the cross and let Christ live through me. But the birth of all sin has to be done away from God where we think at least we're away from God, done behind his back, the whisper campaign that began in heaven. We cannot do it in the presence of God. So the very first step in walking in the Spirit is consciously remembering, I'm in the presence of God here. And when I do that, I'll make better choices. And those better choices will be empowered by God. And that's when I'll begin to experience love, joy, peace, and the rest. You see, it's all about us being on the cross and Christ living in us. Are you familiar with this poem? God sent his son. They called him Jesus. He came to love, heal, and forgive. He lived and died to buy my pardon. An empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. And because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone. Because I know He holds the future. And life is worth the living because he lives. So I have a question for you. Who is living in your heart? Is it Christ or is it you? Who is the one on the cross? Is it Christ in your heart or is it you? And what the Bible is teaching us today is you put yourself on the cross and let Christ live. Let him live in you. Let him give you power over sin.
and doubt and fear. And so today, I'm wondering, is there anyone here who, number one, will admit they have a sinful nature? Number two, will ask God to help them put that sinful nature on the cross. And by God's grace, neglect it and let it die from neglect. If you would like to say that to God, I invite you to stand. Father in heaven, we pray that Jesus would live within us and that our sinful nature would be nailed to a cross. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I invite all of you to stand as we have our closing song.